Am I right? Do you feel, you know, just an- anecdotally looking in your community um, that that it's a very confusing time for people? N- all of us get tugged at the heartstrings when we think about quote unquote sick kids. But I don't know that a mask mandate prevents or or turns the problem around in a hurry. There's a lot of other other issues that would have would have done that in the last six months. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think like from a public health perspective, it's, you know, two and a half years, almost three years into this. It's time to start kind of wrestling, you know, the narrative back from the extremes and really focus on very kind of traditional public health issues. So, you know, wanting to address the unmet needs that folks have if folks are really at risk, and that includes young children who are really at risk, making sure that they have the resources available to them to protect them. The same with adults in their communities, Um, you know, and so I think this idea of like an intervention for everybody, irrespective of risk, is just burning trust and it's burning energy. And, uh, you know, I think just at this point, we really need the public to have that energy to still engage in things that matter as we kind of head into an influenza season and, and other things. And so, indeed, I just think at this point, like the mask mandate discussion has just burned so much trust from the public that whatever it gains would have been, which I think were minimal at best, mm-hmm. um, you know, is, 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 is totally outweighed by the harms that it's causing at this point. Do you worry those arguments have cost us uh, other tangible things, higher booster rates among the vulnerable, um, ventilation in, in buildings that needed those are where our energies probably should have gone in the last several months? Yeah, I mean, both those are separate. I'm just going to, I'll take on the ventilation piece first. Sure. Like the ventilation discussion on Twitter is so devoid of reality. As we know, like people, first of all, like the city needs to like, you know, bid these things out. Other folks need to do it. Then they need to go through a procurement process and approvals process, you know, it needs to be approved at the city. Like these things take years. This idea that you can just change ventilation in a heartbeat or even within a few months was so disingenuous. And I think what happened, obviously, you know, as as you may remember, I work in the shelter system. Mm -hmm. All we did was set up these like, these asbestos filters all throughout the shelter system. I don't know what each one of them costs, but each of them sounds like, and I, I'm not exaggerating, like like an airplane. And so you have these airplane-like things outside of people's rooms that you're supposed to be running 24 hours a day. And what do you think people do? It's but unplug them constantly because it's driving them crazy. And so I think it's things like that that just like aren't considerate of like what actually happens in the real world. And ventilation, indeed, for new builds, we should absolutely be improving our standards and improving indoor air. But the idea that we're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to like retrofit all of our buildings is something that should be considered very carefully against all the other things that that money could be spent on. So that, you know, one piece. And in terms of the booster piece, so as you may remember also, I'm still running this vaccine program in the shelter system. And we're getting so much pushback from like normal vaccines that I never had to argue with people about, like Pneumovax and Shingrix and, you know, obviously influenza. And so it's just like we've pushed so hard on vaccines online and in the media that people just want to be left alone, even for things that they used to be okay with. So indeed, I think, you know, if we had focused our messages and and focused our programs and done more outreach on those communities that have been disproportionately burdened throughout, we would absolutely be doing much better right now in terms of addressing their needs and keeping them up to date on their boosters. I mean, when you lay that out, the idea that an, an adult, especially a vulnerable adult, would you know reject an MMR vaccine or reject a polio vaccine or reject it for their kids, Stefan, like it, like I'm not a crier, but I want I want to just ball. It, that makes me ill to think about. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about medicine and, and translates to public health as well is that like people don't always make the decision that you want them to make. 
And that's okay. You know, I think that like, we just have to, you know, we start a conversation. Like mm -hmm. if you, when your doctor starts forcing you into things, it's, that's like, what's the point of studying medicine at that point? You know what I mean? It's really like understanding humanity, engaging people where they're at, trying to move them further along, but not pushing them too hard or you lose them, particularly folks that are like historically marginalized and disenfranchised. And so I never push hard. We offer, we engage the conversation. And, and I've felt throughout that like this sort of this pushing yeah. on people has caused them to push back in ways that are not helpful to themselves. I, I can't uh, help. I, I just went from crying to laughing because I'm picturing a doctor's visit where somebody said, listen, buddy, I need you to stop smoking and I need you to lose 20 pounds or or I'm going to repossess your car in a month. Well, that would go no. over. <laughs> I yeah. Think about no, that. No. But that's that's the threat that mandates are now bringing to people at a certain point in, in their brains, isn't it? Well, I think that, you know, we've heard this kind of repeat narrative of like, well, if you didn't wear a mask or you didn't get a vaccine, you go to the back of the line of the healthcare system, which first Ugh. of all is against the Canada Health Act. But second of all, puts us on a slope, not over the next year, but like think about 10 years or 20 years from now, where indeed it's like obesity, smoking, alcohol, you know, diabetes, all these things that have lifestyle related elements that are important to address. Um, you know, it just puts us on a path that is not the type of medicine that I want to practice and is totally contravenes the Canada Health Act. All right. I want to ask about uh, the term immunity debt. There's people that are, you know, to be honest, kind of crapping all over it right now. There's people that, that, that also may be taking it way too far and saying it's a much bigger reason why RSV is circulating right now. There are people that would suggest even if masks, even if they help protect against viruses, Putting masks back on kids who are susceptible would we'd overwhelm the healthcare system even further, and that it's lockdowns and restrictions as to why we've partly gotten here. What do you say about it? I think the term immunity immunity debt's a problematic term. Just say that. I think that it's it's a relatively new term. Historically, we use the term immunity gap, mm -hmm. and I, maybe it sounds like semantics, but I think it's important because nobody owes a debt to an infectious disease. And so, like, I don't I don't want to get an infectious disease. I don't owe a debt to one. I think that you know immunity gap goes back in the literature 50, 60 years, normally related to vaccination. But we also know that it relates to inf you know infection-related immunity. So you know when H1N1 popped up in 2009, we knew that younger kids that hadn't been exposed in the 1976 H1N1 were more at risk, and so that was because of a population-level immunity gap. So it's not a new term. Anybody who says it's a new term is either being disingenuous or just is so reflective of these TV doctors that have never actually spent any time in infectious disease or literature. So it's painful to hear that discussion. Yeah. In terms of- Go, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yep. Finish up. Yeah. No, I think just to say briefly, in terms of why we're here, I think, I think it's a mix of things. Indeed, kids are back in school. Some of those kids haven't seen each other. You know, I, I don't know. I don't think that actually masks play a big part of it, but I think, you know, this idea of kids being more likely to be back in sports, back in extracurriculars, back in school, all of a sudden kind of created this dynamic where they got infected and folks and kids at risk. And kid, parents have continued just pushing their kids in school because they're so desperate to have their kids in school. And so I think there's like this recalibration that needs to happen where if your kid is sick, keep them home. I know they missed a lot of school, but keep them home. But at the same time, let's kind of continue on with this minimizing disruptions in education. Um, and indeed, I, I just want to say briefly, my personal vibe is that masks interfere with development and education. And that's just my perspective. It's shared by me. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show this morning, Stefan. Sure. I always appreciate it. Great. Thanks very much. Take care. Stefan Burrell is a physician, epidemiologist, and a professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health.